Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies. My name is Adam McNeil, and today we have the esteemed opportunity to speak to Dr. Ashley Farmer. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies. My name is Adam McNeil, and today we have the esteemed opportunity to speak to Dr. Ashley Farmer. Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Boston University. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Farmer. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. And um, briefly, if you don't mind, because we're talking to uh, Dr. Farmer as well, because her phenomenal recently published book through the University of North Carolina Press, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era. And so that book was recently published once again by the University of North Carolina Press. And so, Dr. Farmer, uh, before we get into, uh, you know, the particular book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, For college, I went to historically black college in Atlanta, Georgia, called Spelman College, where I actually majored in French and minored in Spanish. So a little bit of a career switch to being a historian of African-American history. Um, But it definitely shows you that you can um, kind of take a winding road to kind of figuring out your interests. Um, After that, I went to graduate school at Harvard University and got a PhD in um, African-American studies with an emphasis on African-American history. And that is where my interest really in Black women's history tried to blossom in intellectual history and social history. So um, I changed my focus a little bit to um, primarily focus on um, domestic activism in the 60s and 70s and the product of which you see in the book. I, I love the historically Black connection there because as I'm wearing um, my Florida a University hoodie uh, where I graduated. So uh, very good. And so um, so, so while you were um, at at uh, Howard, uh, excuse me, Harvard, um, excuse me, you know, the when I was reading the book, I was thinking about all of the different um, professors that have gone through that particular program, and uh, like someone like uh, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. I was writing about Ida B. Wells um, not too long ago when it came to uh, her uh, uh, her brief work with uh, the Black Baptist Women's Movement, and obviously Dr. Higginbotham's uh, paramount work. Uh, on that, and so you know, when I when I thought about uh, wh- where you uh, came from as far as uh, Harvard, that's the instant person when I thought about uh, that particular school and who's come through that particular program as professors. Uh, yeah, actually, um, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham was my advisor at Harvard University, um, and um, a, an interesting um, tidbit is that you know she teaches. 20th century African-American history um, and African-American intellectual history. And it was in that African-American intellectual history class um, that I did a paper that ended up being um, kind of the, the fifth chapter of the book, you know, in its earliest form. Um, and kind of got me um, thinking about how to tell the story of Black women 
um, and Black power through an intellectual history. So she had a um, profound, uh, I guess, um, influence on my work in the book that you um, see today. Very good. And um, and also, before we get any further, the first thing that I, saw, that I thought about when I, when I looked at the cover of the book was the outstanding cover art that that you have on here and uh, on, on, on both sides. And I, I definitely have to uh, say that that was a phenomenal decision to put that because it, it's it definitely puts uh, a stamp on the book that you obviously have and the words that you have put together inside because you definitely pack that big old punch with, with the with a particular cover art. Uh, yeah, you know, um, the cover act is actually um, a creation from a um, Charlotte-based artist named Marcus Kaiser. Um, I actually came, I, um, as I was finishing up the book, I was on a postdoctoral fellowship at Duke University, and I took a trip to Charlotte, which is about two hours away, and went to an African-American museum there. Um, and he had this great um, exhibit up there. Um, that he does, he does um, all these wonderful drawings, kind of Afrofuturistic drawings and kind of black imaginary drawings. Um, um, and, um, and so I wrote to him and asked him if I could use, you know, some of his work, obviously, you know, or he would allow us to, you know, pay him to use some of the work on the cover because I really thought the way in which he um, conveyed um, blackness and what kind of radical possibility could be um, was pretty great. And so I sent him actually the intro of the book and he really loved it. And so um, he was gracious enough to let us allow to use some of his artwork for the cover. Definitely. And um, and we'll definitely have to make sure to to give him a plug in the, in the full description for this as well, because once again, it was a phenomenal and, you know, the readers might not be able to see it, uh, or excuse me, the listening audience might not be able to, to, to see it right now. But Believe me, by the end of this interview, you're going to make sure you you go to uh, go to the web page and pick this bad boy up. Um, and so and also I, I thought it was very profound considering the week that we are recording this interview on this Friday is at the end of the week of something that happened that was pretty historic um, that happened on Tuesday with uh, the election of Doug Jones. But more importantly, not Doug Jones, but who got him there and that being um, uh, uh, black women. Uh, and, and I thought that obviously I didn't think that that, well, I'm going to be honest. I didn't necessarily think that would happen per se, but (laughs) yeah, definitely. And so, um, with that happening and obviously what happens right, right, pretty much immediately with the coverage was, I'm glad that you had a lot of, uh, black coverage of specifically how he got there being Doug Jones, being black women and the power of their vote and the power of their organizing as well. And, and so I definitely thought that that was um, a great way to bring into our interview, at least through, uh, through the particular time at which we come together today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see a, a couple of really great connections between um, what was happening in Alabama and um, what the book is about. I mean, um, first and foremost, it really explains how kind of pervasive grassroots organizing was both yesterday and today. Um, and I think no more so than something like, um, you know, um, the Black Panther Party, um, which, uh, you know, was originally in Louds County. Um, so you see that there was a rich network of, um, and besides that, you know, you had Montgomery, you had, you know, Tuskegee, you had a range of people in Alabama um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were really doing the kind of grassroots work needed um, in order to um, change black elected um, or kind of increase the black electorate, which therefore, you know, 
um, comes forth in the Alabama election today. So I think, um, you know, the Alabama election reminds us most importantly of the um, centrality of grassroots organizing, whether that be through, you know, the NAACP or more radical organizations, but also really that at the local level, it's African-American women that are um, building the networks and going out and doing the kind of um, brick and mortar organizing that gets us, you know, really important wins in terms of um, political representation and swing, you know, the halls of Congress. Um, oh, yeah. 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 And, and when I think about, you know, the, the, the particular book that you come uh, that you come to in this project, it, it's exactly because I, I do more of my work, um, as you spoke about uh, offline previously in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so t- trying to make these connections from the past to the more present um, to let people know that from Mariah Stewart all the way back to, you know, a lot of their early organizing with abolitionists, that there's a tradition that was blazed that the the main constant, you know, that the constant uh, uh, portion is that black women are, are are very central to the organizing tradition and, and liberal and also uh, radical frameworks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And so um, can you briefly, because, uh, you know, on the New Books Network's African American Studies channel, you know, we might expect everyone to know uh, what Black Power was, but mm-hmm. I know that there are probably be a few people who who might be a little bit, you know, um, uh, not, you know, they might not necessarily know exactly what Black Power was. And so, before we go right into the book uh, "Remaking Black Power," can you give us a a, a, a brief definition of what you would say the the Black Power era? Uh, particularly was, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's important to think about kind of Black power as a set of um, principles and ideas, and then Black power as um, kind of a form of activism or movement. Um, So typically when we say Black power, um, we're talking about um, the idea of um, sometimes, but not always, Black separatism, but certainly Black self-sufficiency, Black community control, Um, and Black self-determination. And these are ideas um, that people buy into certainly before and after the 1960s and 70s, but kind of a political ideology that we're speaking of. But we're also thinking about um, a Black power movement. When we talk about that, we're talking about largely the period in the 60s and 70s where African-Americans en masse um, engaged in um, fulfilling or um, practicing these principles of, you know, self-defense, autonomy, self-determination in concentrated ways. Um, So it really did range. And one of the main goals of the book is to um, kind of play, you know, give testament to the range of ways in which people um, enacted Black power, you know, making sure that it wasn't one thing and also explaining that women did it in very specific ways. So for some activists, it might be, um, you know, getting rid or shedding kind of the Eurocentric markers of culture, whether that be names, dress, airstyles, um, cultural practices like um, Christmas, replacing it with Kwanzaa, for example, um, and as a way to practice kind of Black self-determination and independence. Other folks would say it would be, um, you know, kind of Black control of a community a la the Black Panther Party, in which they created, um, you know, breakfast programs, shoe programs, 
um, you know, medical centers, et cetera, as a way to um, make sure that the community had all the needs that they could provide instead of relying on white power or white economics. Others um, even practice it as somewhat as a form of black capitalism, the idea that you should invest in black owned businesses, black owned real estate, um, with the idea that if you can control these things, you have um, a larger stake and say in what happens to the black community. So I really want to emphasize that they're practiced in all these different ways, but at its core, um, you know, historians typically talk about it organized around self-defense, self-determination, and community control. When, and, and, and I'm glad that you made that great preface about, you know, trying to, I think, and in part of the reason why I asked you to make your particular definition of Black power and kind of the different contours and the different uh, uh, definitions that other people might bring up. So like, even the black capitalism portion uh, that people think about maybe with someone like a Booker T. Washington that uh, would have gone a little bit further back at the turn of the century as a way of black power. And, uh, and, and that may be a function of it, but, you know, I'm definitely glad that you made the um, particular uh, grounding for the audience. Uh, because I think sometimes when we talk about these particular eras, if we're working with different definitions, it's a little bit tougher to really, mm-hmm. Uh, go about and understand what the particular area was. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think also one of the things that the book emphasizes is that, um, you know, all of these kinds of ideas or um, kind of political ideologies have gender specific expressions. So for an African-American woman, self-determination might mean control over one's body or reproductive capacity. Um, In addition to, um, you know, politics, economics, culture, and kind of the more traditional ways. So I think it's important to think about, um, you know, the the 60s and 70s as being a moment in which people are really thinking about what these terms mean and all the different ways in which one can engage in kind of empowering one's community and oneself, you know, and all the different dimensions that Black people live and walk in, you know, and are in this world. Absolutely. And so um, to get into the book specifically, can you talk to us about how, you know, the the, the World War eras, so we'll say from uh, 1914, 1918 being World War One, the interwar period in between, and also World War II, 1939 to 1945. How those, how that particular time frame, effectively the first half of the uh, 20th century, how did that time frame really push us into the uh, to the Black Power quote unquote era that most people would think about? You know, not necessarily true or not. Uh, but the Black Power era leading into the ni- the mid to late 1960s. Can you can you tell us about what's going on that pushes and also that centralizes Black women into that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so you know, when talking about the earlier era, a couple key organizations come to mind. Um, the first in you know the 1920s would be Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, um, which is the largest Black nationalist um, organization in the world and nationalist movement in the world. Um, and there, Garvey is very much talking about um, you know Black separatism to the extent that it's possible, um, Black economic self determination, Black political self determination, and also kind of arrest an early kind of iteration of what we would probably now call, you know, Black is beautiful in the sense of um, talking about Black people in their richness, in their beauty, both physically, in the richness of history, um, in their richness of culture. Um, And many people, I I would say that this organization probably more so than any other organization laid the groundwork for um, late 20th century iterations of Black power, which, you know, would be kind of a brand of Black nationalism often. Um, And it laid the groundwork largely because many of um, 
the kind of early adopters of Black Power might have been um, around during the Garvey movement, but most importantly, they probably had family members, um, uh, parents, who and mentors who um, were basically politicized through the Garvey movement. Um, so um, a good example of someone who was politicized and then became a mentor would be somebody like Queen Mother Audley Moore, who um, you know became a got, came into contact with Garveyism in the 1920s, and then as she became kind of a lifelong movement radical, went on to mentor folks, say in the Harlem branch of the Black Panther Party or um, the Revolutionary Action Movement in Philadelphia, and impart some of those things on there. Um, a second really huge influence in the, um, you know, kind of early war and pre-war, I'm sorry, interwar era would be um, the Communist Party. Um, we see for the first time um, the Communist Party making a concerted effort to um, incorporate African-Americans into their um, ranks and in doing so develop specific ideas about African-American oppression and liberation, which um, black, black people flock to, um, nothing more so than what is now called the Black Belt Thesis, um, which was adopted in 1928, which basically says that black people um, constitute kind of a nation in a nation and, um, you know, set apart by their... Um, historic and contemporary subjugation, shared heritage, shared culture, shared linguistic practices, and have the right to separate. And while this is kind of a, you know, a um, kind of ideological means, it did not, it, it attracted those who were interested in Garveyism. It also attracted those who were interested in self-determination and standing up for Black people. And most importantly, the Communist Party um, engaged in kind of day-to-day -day acts of self-determination with Black people, whether that be during the Great Depression, um, you know, having um, strikes for high weight, higher wages um, or price gouging against African-American communities, going after landlords and other folks who had um, discriminated against African-Americans. So these kind of two earlier groups, both ideologically and organizationally, really set the tone for people to adopt Black power in the later years. Um, part of what I argue in the kind of the first chapter of the book is that there were a couple of key black women theorists, namely Claudia Jones um, and Alice Childress and Mae Mallory, who were really influenced by, um, they, they're kind of exemplars of black women who were really influenced um, by these earlier movements, but also were younger at the time and therefore um, alive, you know, in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, when black power was again gearing up. And I see them as people who took these lessons and ideas from these older organizations and kind of reformulated them to fit the political moment in the 1960s, which then laid the groundwork for a Black Power era um, activism. But they're not alone. I mean, I think it's widely known that um, folks like um, um, Malcolm X's parents were Garveyites, for example, um, and other folks. So, um, but those two groups, I would say, um, in the pre, you know, um, the first World War years, and then more so the Communist Party. Um, in the Latin, kind of the mid 20th century before the 1950s, the 30s and 40s, um, um, really were key um, influences in in black nationalism and what would now become black power. Right. And, and absolutely. And so when I thought about uh, and, and when I was reading through uh, your book, I think one of the most profound notions in this book that I had no clue about and I, and I thought. You know, I'll I'll tell you this, audience. Um, I thought that I knew about the Black Power era, but <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely not. Uh, at least not as much as I thought. And so I I, I definitely appreciated how so many of the different uh, Black radical groups and, and and at times Black liberal groups as well. You know, the the notions of so so like a you know we talk about Quans and all these different 
uh, uh, creations that came through this particular era that looking at us, you know, that are central, but it's almost like it's always in our popular notions of black power, the black Panthers, it's typically always men Mm -hmm. that are the front and the leaders and are the theorists and are the organizers and are all that in a bag of, you know, I would say chips, but you know, I'm a Southern. I, I love my, I love my uh, sweet potato pie. So it's lots of uh, sweet potato pie, but it, it, where, where are the women in this? And, and it, I had to really break that down in my mind and think, why is it that I only know them? It's not as if there, you know, there, there was a literal silence of women, like they were not there but they were. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely thank you for, for your particular work here. Cause I think for many people, um, whether on purpose or not, that I think is something that they grow up with as far as their understandings uh, of black power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so one of the main things that um, the book is kind of, you know, pushing against is this idea that, I mean, you know, that that sexism was so kind of all encompassing that black women didn't theorize or organize or influence the movement. And, you know, this real this notion really comes from the activists which I interviewed um you know, talking about it, you know, I went, I also went into some of these interviews, into some of this research with that kind of understanding, because that's what you're taught. However, when I actually spoke with a lot of these women, you know, what they were telling me was, yes, of course, there was sexism. It was the 1960s, it was the 1970s, yes, Um, to to pretend that there wasn't um, would be, you know, kind of ahistorical. However, they did not view it as totalizing or as kind of all encompassing as we do today. And a lot of that is us putting on, you know, kind of putting our kind of modern day ideas about their lives back onto it. And then, you know, when you when you kind of adjust your frame for that, you really do see that they're everywhere. Um, just really nobody bothered to look to give you um, a really, you know, kind of simple example is something like the Black Panther Party, which, again, is a largely um you know, kind of in the popular and scholarly imagination really is a male-centered organization. But you open up their newspaper, there's women everywhere in terms of kind of images. There are um, articles um, about women and what they want to do being a revolutionary woman, which I address in my second chapter. There's actual artwork by African-American women. And then there's also tons of articles addressing, you know, reproductive justice, black feminism, et cetera. Um, So these same kind of... um, Sources that we've often been using as evidence of, you know, sexism and patriarchy are really brimming with, um, you know, black women's contributions to the movement. We just haven't really cued ourselves to look. It's been under our noses the whole time. Um, So a big good goal of the book is trying to push against that notion and say, you know, go back and look again and see what is really not there and what is really just kind of our cultural bias coming in. Right. And, and, and your, the artwork in this book, um, and, and when, especially when I was reading through the introduction, um, when I first got my hands on the book, it was profound because the use of material culture um, is something that I'm still, you know, in my uh, academic training at the end of my master's program, it's still something that I'm, I'm working on because uh, the, the, the production and and how you have the theorization, you have these other areas, but the artwork is another area um, that I thought was also important uh, when you when you put together the contributions uh, and, and the central frames that uh, Black women uh, produced with this with the uh, with the Black Power movement 
as well. And that was something that I had no clue about. Obviously, I knew about newspapers and and such like that, but I didn't know um, about, you know, really the artwork that went along with this. And obviously, it coincides with the Black Arts Movement as mm-hmm. well, but the particular artwork that were in the newspapers for, for like the, the the Panthers and such like that as well. You know, kind of there's two goals in kind of featuring that in the book. One, like I said, is just to emphasize that this was um, that that black women were producing kind of a vibrant cultural, um, you know, um, or p- contributing to a vibrant political and um, cultural movement through their writing and through their artwork and through their speeches. Um, but it's also kind of a pushback of this idea of kind of apol- apolitical black women or anti-intellectual black women. Um, there's a way in which um, we privilege only certain kinds of intellectual production as theorizing or um, putting forth a set of ideologies or politics. And so in including, you know, women's handbooks and including artwork and including women's columns, um, including, um, you know, collages that they would publish, um, I'm really trying to challenge, you know, what we argue as historians counts as intellectual productions and therefore as a result, you know, who counts as an intellectual in that sense. That's huge because um, as you talked about, you, you, you're one of your themes um, as a scholar is intellectual history. And I mm-hmm. think that the, you know, especially I've been writing about uh, folks like um, uh, Harriet Tubman and, and women of the 19th century and how the production, the intellectual production, and like you, you brought up, who gets to become an intellectual is something mm-hmm. that's huge. And, um, you know, when I, when I asked you to, to, to come on for the interview, one of the things I remember was um, I, I spoke about in an in interview, uh, not an interview, but um, an event that you were at at the Schomburg about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, where uh, I believe it was uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Ms. Gloria Richardson was there along with uh, um, uh, a couple other scholars and such. And so what I thought about was, this woman went through so much and she mm-hmm. was not your is she's not your regular representative of the 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 intellectual right but she was right there theorizing and and right there with people that we think of as an intellectual like a Stokely Carmichael or others mm-hmm. that she is the one that's introducing him to particular concepts and expanding his understanding of of organizing and and, and not just organizing from above, but with with people. And I think that that's, I mean, one of the quintessential things that we have got to um, kind of reframe about African-American um, history, in particular in African-American women's history. Really, the genre or kind of field of African-American women, um, intellectual history is dedicated to thinking about all the different ways in which um, Black people produce thought, um, and whether that be um, political thought, cultural thought, um, you know, economic thought, et cetera, there really is a wide range of the ways we're allowed, to, we do it. And one of those things is that, you know, we have to do it in the spaces in which we are allowed to do it. Um, so sometimes it takes forms that are dramatically different from um, what most would see as intellectualism, um, you know, in its, in its purest form. Um, but not looking at that and not acknowledging that is a huge um, detriment to understanding um, kind of the Black freedom struggle and really the African-American experience. I also think um, one of the things that we need to really start to account for is, um, you know, the idea of intellectual influence. 
you know, many of these women, like you said, um, you know, may not have had formal training and written every little thing down, but they were hugely influential on both major male and female figures that we kind of herald today. Um, so I think that we've got to start developing more frameworks for thinking about how somebody's um, kind of ideas float around a group or a community and become, you know, embodied in different activists and really try to give them credit for that where we can. Mm, absolutely. And, um, and, and I definitely uh, get that coming from your book because you speak about so many different, um, so many different areas within black power. Um, and you, 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 you don't focus on men, but just to, to show people that as all of these things are going on, that there were black women that were theorizing and and really expanding uh, the the imagination of of how you know not just black men get free, but mm-hmm. the entire the entirety of blackness, which which is something that a lot of activists today obviously are are dealing with with uh, with Black Lives Matter as a present day iteration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the book is focused, you know, is kind of using the lens of um, Black women's best hopes about what freedom could look like in their roles within it to talk about um, how they contribute to kind of an intellectual discourse and a Black radical discourse, but also how to show how they contributed into the movement by trying to embody, you know, those ideals to the best of their ability. Um, and in the process of having these I, these conversations, both kind of um, what's the everyday role of Black women in Black power, but also, you know, what does freedom look like for everybody? What does an inclusive version of freedom look like? They really did start to change, I mean, in many of their male counterparts' minds. You know, we see, you know, throughout the book, I try to um, mention moments in which um, – you know, you see men who would have formerly kind of articulated a more conservative or what would now be deemed sexist stance revise their thoughts. Um, and also um, the moments in which you see, um, you know, their male counterparts really support them in their visions of freedom. And I think that's important to show kind of, again, that influence and exchange that's taking place. But I also think it's really important for the study of Black men and Black power in the sense that um, some of our, you know, kind of favorite. Um, leaders from that period are kind of ensconced in one idea way of thinking, you know, once they said one sexist comment, it kind of becomes their soundbite, you know, or once they ascribe to something sometime, but like everybody, they grow and they change. Um, And so by kind of, you know, um, documenting that interplay, we can also see the ways in which some of the leaders who we, um, you know, are no doubt, you know, we're not, articulating freedom in its peers or in its most inclusive form at the get-go did learn to change their minds in large part because of these articles and um, debates and, you know, stuff that black women were having. So I think it, it also shows us, you know, that people can change and grow when these debates are out in the open and when we kind of really theorize and work towards more inclusive understandings of black freedom. Yes, 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 yes. And so when I when I thought about um, what you were speaking of, uh, another area that I thought about was, uh, you know, the the international notions of, of black power. And, and especially when you get into um, and, and actually even before the international portion, we can get to that later. But um, actually to go back, uh, even I, I love what you talked about with the militant Negro domestic. Because I think a lot of times, uh, especially when 
when we're when a lot of us obviously we come and we live at you know academic campuses, right? And so we mm-hmm. have the organizing that goes on, and um, and and you know you're at Boston University, so you you probably heard the news about you know what was going on with the with the workers at Harvard, uh, mm-hmm. some of the, the organizing going on there, and so thinking about even on campuses how we treat to bring it more to, I guess to a current example even of how universities and, and, and higher ed treat their particular workers and how we might think of them as the people that we see cleaning the library or doing this and that, but that doesn't mean that they don't have, that they, that they are, you know, uh, that they don't have the opportunity or the potential to be um, active intellectuals and, and produce, um, effectively what's in your particular book. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's huge, especially because a lot of us live and we breathe on college campuses and that's effectively where our lives are the majority of the day. And yet we don't necessarily always think about in the contemporary of how other people can become theorists as well and not only become, but actually are. And so that's a, really what I thought about um, when it came to uh, the, mil- uh, the militant uh, Negro domestic to give one particular example. Yeah. So, um, you know, just for the audience, the book opens um, around this idea that in kind of the post-war era, black women were theorizing the idea or the ideal of the militant Negro domestic. Um, And I argue that this is a... um, this is a way in which they're kind of constructing this political identity or this way of being a black woman um, in satire, in um, political essays, in prison letters, et cetera. Um, and they're theorizing black women or kind of black women's militancy in this way for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, before 1965, most likely if you were employed as a black woman, you were employed as a domestic. So it's a very, um, you know, kind of universal understanding of black womanhood. In some cases, especially in kind of the 40s and 30s, it really comes to stand in in their work for kind of the meaning of being a black woman. Um, But also what they're doing is saying exactly what you said, that, um, you know, these black women who are cleaning women's white women's homes are the most um, racially, gender, and economically oppressed people. And so therefore, their visions of how Black liberation are um, the most militant often and have the most to offer for everybody. And so a large part of um, Black women's work in the 1940s and early 1950s was really centered around this idea of um, casting Black women, and particularly Black domestic workers, as politicized, um, very intelligent, um, and in some cases, radicalized people. And I argue that they, um, you know, framed them as, um, you know, you know, kind of black centered, um, you know, very leftist in terms of their economics, um, and, and very, um, aware of both national international ideas and very interested in kind of self-determination and self-sufficiency for black people at home and abroad in a very real and tangible way. Um, and I think this is important for exactly what you said, you know, to understand that people are theorizing from all different vantage points in all different places in a society or kind of a social ecosystem. But also to say that, you know, this kind of theorizing um, and the women who kind of embodied this idea of the militant Negro domestic really set the stage for black power in the, in the decades that followed. Mm-hmm. And absolutely. And, and so going into one of those decades, and when, when we look at um, even your theor- uh, the, the theory of a uh, black revolutionary woman ensconced within 
the Black pa- uh, the Black uh, Panther Party, for instance, that was something that um, when I thought about, so like in my mind, to give you an example, when I think about the times from 67 to like 75, uh, to give you uh, what, what the frame of the chapter, uh, second chapter was, when I think about that particular time, I think about, you know, the, the, the Vietnam War stances that that uh, Carl, that Stokely Carmichael and and uh, that uh, Dr. King take up, and then obviously with the death of King, and I think about um, the the movement with the with the Panthers, but also I thought about um, the, the the feminist movement as well. That's that's growing, and the gender uh, uh, the understanding of gender um, within um, a lot of the organizing is expanding as well. And they're not independent. They're happening together. And, and, and mm-hmm. I didn't really think about that until I read, I read, your, I read Remaking Black Power. And, and I guess, in effect, that was the point, remaking it in, in my, <laughs> my particular mind. So I see what you did there. Um, and so, so definitely that was a, that was a tremendous uh, contribution. Yeah. Um, so, you know, after talking about this idea of the militant black domestic from um, the book shifts into talking about um, some other ideas of black womanhood, including the revolutionary black woman, um, the African woman and the third world black woman and, um, and the pan-African woman um, in the in these kind of um, ideals correspond from, you know, the early 60s till about the early 80s. And one of the ties that you see kind of going through all of them is this um real understanding of um, the movements around them and the clear stakes into um, Black women's roles in that. And I mean that in a couple of ways. Um, First, I mean that in the sense that um, you certainly see feminist, what would now be called, you know, feminist thought in all of these um, different ideas of what it meant to be a Black woman during the Black power era. However, um, you don't see them claim feminism in quite the same way. Um, You see them develop a very um, racially specific understanding of what it means to be a woman in America, what it means to be a woman as part of the African diaspora, and what it means to be a woman um, as part of, um, you know, a people of colors um, in the sense of other kind of um, third world nations that people that live in the United States that are um, consider themselves part of those nations and those that are abroad. you see them integrate that in there, you also see them have a really very internationalist sensibility, this idea that their fate is linked, um, not only with other Black people within the United States, but also in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Um, And I think that all of that kind of feminist sensibility and that kind of internationalist um, gaze that they all, you know, incorporate into their political thought is really a product of being influenced by and in the middle of all of these movements taking place at once and trying to really figure out, you know, where do black women stand and where do they as people stand um, in navigating the politics of each of those? When I thought about, you know, like you were saying, like with the the expansion of this particular time, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's something that I think that people don't necessarily equate uh, with this time frame. but it, it was such a radical time. And, and obviously as, you know, I wasn't I wasn't alive around that time. I wasn't even mm-hmm. a thought. Um, and so when I try to think about and try to and maybe this is more present is try to bring things in the contemporary of how you can uh, bridge the gap, uh, especially with my work in public history and trying to let people know that. The there were people who were continuously in all of these particular movements as we, we opened uh, talking about the, the election of uh, Doug Jones, for example, 
there's always these black women who are not these, but black women in general who are continuously pushing movements to expand Mm -hmm. their vision Mm -hmm. because, you know, as a black man, you know, my focus, you know, you would think is just uh, uh, about, about racial issues, right? That, I'm not necessarily bound, obviously, to uh, the gender constructs constructs of the day. But what you show is that these, you know, uh, the the women that you speak of in your book are the ones who are pushing these organizers, these these organizations and traditions to expand their understanding of of black freedom. And and obviously Mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, all generations have to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, going back to this militant Negro domestic bit also always is this idea that, you know, black women typically are the most exploited. So to understand if if we really grasp all the different ways in which they're experiencing life and come up with a um, a political theory and an organizing strategy around that, that really does benefit those who may just be experiencing economic oppression or racial oppression or the intersection of race and gender oppression, et cetera. Um, and so you really do see them at each point in the book saying, you know, let's, we, we are very much interested in the different political ideologies or different interpretations of self-determination, self-sufficiency, and liberation. However, we'd like to expand those to be more inclusive because of the ways we have to navigate the world as Black women. Um, And in doing so, you know, you can have a more um, encompassing notion of freedom. I mean, it's also a critique to say, you know, you can't only want part of the Black community to get free. Either everybody's everybody's on the train, and and like I said, it benefits everybody to be on that train, or um, you know you're going to leave some behind, and if you and if you are practicing that kind of exclusivity, you are playing into the hands of the power structure um, that you're trying to defy, you know, in that way. And I think they were really trying to get that across. Yes, and and the immediate thing that I think about is that clip of um, of Fannie Lou Hamer. I think it was from the late '60s where she spoke about. Um, like the American flag and, and how if mm-hmm. you don't let, you know, if, if you don't, if you ain't going to let us have it, you know, being freedom, if you ain't going to let us have it, we're going to take it because, mm-hmm. and, and if you and effectively, if you don't let us have it, we're also going to tear it, tear it up. Right. And so, you know, and, and this is something that I think about as well when it comes to, oh, you know, when it comes to rebellions, oh, oh, why are you burning up your, your own neighborhood? Why are you burning up your property? Well, there's an interesting relationship with black people because they're the only group of people in this country that were literally property and they were mm-hmm. descent from people who were property as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a particular relationship there. And so when I thought about, uh, you know, this expansion of, of freedom, freedom for everybody, you know, uh, or even the present example of Beyonce in, in her song, Freedom uh, mm-hmm. uh, from, from Lemonade, uh, you know, she's talking about, you know, I need freedom too. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about freedom and yet Beyonce is still talking about, I need freedom too. And that's something that uh, is something that is very important to our understanding of, mm-hmm. of, of freedom and, and uh, the limitations on it as well. Sometimes not necessarily imposed from outside, but sometimes from within as well. You, you keep seeing that idea come up is that, you know, we've got to have a much more all-encompassing understanding of freedom. And it seems to be the main challenge, um, you know, in all disadvantages, not just, I mean, you know, we talk about the exclusion of, um, you know, LBGTQ folks, we talk about the exclusion of trans folks, whatever that is, um, you know, th- you cannot, you know, 
pursue freedom on the backs of someone else. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're really attuned to it in terms of the man-woman dynamic. But um, the key now is for us to continue to understand all the different ways in which Black people just experience life and make sure we're coming up with the most encompassing things. And this is where I truly think that, um, you know, the lessons of the Black Power era can help us. Um, you know, the ways in which... Um, African-American women were conveying these inclusive ideas of freedom, you know, the ways in which um, they were negotiating these ideas. Um, it, it, it provides a model and, and not a always perfect one, but at least a place to start for thinking about it. Exactly. And so, um, you know, we have friends and, and colleagues, you know, around who are activists and, and such like that. And so um, I, I let my social network know that I was uh, interviewing you. And so I had a number of people who were definitely interested in this interview. And I think that, um, you know, uh, I, I was listening to like an interview that uh, Mark Lamont Hill was talking about one time. And he was talking about how, you know, a lot of organizing now doesn't necessarily have uh, as much of the reading element as well to be able to mm. understand how we mm-hmm. can better organize for the future that, mm-hmm. yes, we want to learn and we want to be able to create our own, but also that the past does have something to tell us uh, as well. And so I definitely think that this is a book for for all kinds of audiences, but I definitely think specifically those who are organizing and who are, who are engaged in struggle in the contemporary sense, I definitely think that this book is, is in part a manual of expansion is, is, is into trying to, you know, expand our, our, our freedom, freedom dreams effectively. I think you raise a really good point. I mean, a lot of people think about Black Panthers of the gun, but, you know, before you could ever get a gun in the Panther Party, you had to go through political education and you had to read Black history. You had to read political theory, France Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, right? You had to, and there was and there was continual study going on to accompany your organizing. So you had an idea of what you were trying to achieve and kind of what you were up against. Um, and sometimes, you know, it, it didn't go well. So I think, or as good as it could have. So I think, um, you know, history offers us a lot of models of, you know, ways that we could organize that we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but also, you know, hopefully it can teach us some of the pitfalls to avoid as well. Exactly. And I think that's, and I think that last portion is exactly uh, uh, the point is that we, we don't want to continuously, and, you know, it's not like the old, old broken record of sorts, but you don't want to continuously say that, oh, you know, we're, we're re- recurring areas of the past that no, like we need to actually rectify uh those fissures. Um, and we have, mm-hmm. we have, we always have an opportunity to, but like black women have always shown us, we have to show the mirror to not only America, but at times to ourselves to be able to say that, yes, we want freedom and we want it now, but we also need freedom for everybody um, as mm-hmm. well. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, also when we think about the international struggle, because obviously people um, who might have seen like Stan- Stanley Nelson's uh, uh, documentary or uh, the Black Power mixtape as well, you, you mm-hmm. would see that, you know, the, the Panther Party had so many different iterations throughout the entire world. And once again, mm-hmm. black women are engaged in that struggle and are theorizing around that struggle, too. So would you be able to tell us about uh, more of the international area of the struggle as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there was it was because it was such a time in which um, a large amount of um 
what we would now call third world countries were um, getting their independence from their colonial powers. I mean, people really did believe that they were living in a moment of kind of the degeneration of white power and the rise of black power. And you see that in very real tangible terms in terms of African nations becoming free and establishing themselves as separate nation states. You see that with um, the Cultural Revolution in China. You see that with um, revolutions taking place across Latin America. And most people in the Black Power era certainly understood that these um, struggles were linked and they were important and had important implications. And most of the time they saw themselves as part of, um, you know, the U.S.-based part of a, a kind of broader international movement. So that spans a lot of different ways. Um, for example, what I talk about in Chapter 1, you know, with the militant Negro domestic, you often see domestic workers and folks talking about decolonization because it's the 40s and 50s. Um, and, you know, how should Africans govern themselves in certain ways? In the Black Panther Party, they had international chapters um, that were in Europe and um, parts of Northern Africa. Um, and they also, their leaders also went on, you know, um, large international tours in which they forged connections with other revolutions taking place, um, particularly in um, Asia, and um, brought these lessons back to America to talk about what can we learn from each other and how can we be in solidarity with each other. Um, there were also very real tangible um, kind of meetings, which I talk about in chapter four, um, with something like the Sixth Pan-African Congress in 1974. Um, and this is, you know, um, uh, there were Pan-African Congresses for most of the 20th century, but this was the first one held on African soil in Tanzania. And um, this, you know, brought literally hundreds of people from across the African diaspora, um, Black Americans being the largest contingent, to really chart a course for the diaspora in this idea, um, you know, in the 70s with this idea that um, we had all of these um, self-governing African nations coupled with a movement taking place in places like, um, you know, the U.S., also in, you know, London and Great Britain, et cetera. Um, and so I think what you walk away from is seeing that um, Black women across the political spectrum and across organizations were very much, and across time periods to a certain extent, um, were very much interested in the international implications of Black power. Um, and they saw themselves as, you know, part of a global kind of empowerment movement. And they were interested in meeting and communing with people to help mutually, um, you know, um, support movements at home and abroad. Right. And so when I, right. And, and so when I think about, you know, the, 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 the Pan-African Conference and, and such like that, you know, when we think about these particular movements and, and we have so many different, there's so much going on. And, and I think a lot of times we think about the 60s being the time that, you know, there, there's so much going on, you know, uh, you know, whether or not you're talking about the assassinations, you're talking about, you know, uh, the, the different areas of struggle within the civil rights movement. And it's almost like we skip the 1970s and just think, it just goes into, you know, the Reagan era in the 80s and the Thatcher era as well in the 80s. And you push towards Clinton and, and then magically you have President Obama. But there's so much that happened in the 1970s that I think we really fail to situate the 70s as an important time of struggle that, you know, you have the first decade of black people being able to go to, you know, predominantly white institutions. and You have the creation of black studies and all these different things that black power is in, engaged in right as well and so uh and 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 even it's it's funny i didn't even think about that until literally just this interview so 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 thank you for that 
Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the seventies, while often overlooked, is is a moment when you know a lot of these these projects come of age. But also, like you said, you see it exploded a different dimension. So certainly, you have um, you know the culmination of things like the start. You know, what was fought out in the late sixties with Black Studies becomes starts to become um, more situated within institutions in the nineteen seventies. Um, black power has to reach a certain kind of um, you know apex in order to have something like a six-pit African Congress where everybody's coming together to do that. I also think it's really important to think about um, the 70s as a moment, both internally that had great um, kind of um, culminations of Black power, one of them being the Gary Convention, um, you know, where really that was an unprecedented meeting of Black people across the political spectrum trying to chart a way forward um, in terms of Black politics within the United States. So, you know, the 70s is really when you see a lot of these kind of major summits of people saying, okay, we've gotten, you know, kind of our bases of organizing taking place in our respective cities or countries. How then do we come together to build a national and international agenda around what we're doing? Um, and, you know, there were successes and failures with it, but it's a really important thing to think about um, in terms of kind of black powers, um, you know, maturing as a movement. Exactly. That, the, the maturation and also in kind of ways, the institutionalization as well, um, because it's it's almost like, you know, sometimes people wonder um, once you almost not like the end of activism, per se, but you see this actually with a lot of. Uh, folks who were active in the 60s and then they be have these you know political careers in congress and in state legislatures and such, that they had been fighting you know in part particularly sometimes outside of the system but and you know they they had a particular radical uh, uh, uh political uh tradition that they were pushing but once they become institutionalized then you know that radicalism starts to push into other areas that are not exactly radical, shall we say. Yeah, um, there's actually a great book about this called Revolutionaries to Race Leaders that really speaks about kind of this this um, this turn. Because you're right, in the 70s and early 80s is also when we see, you know, kind of the wave of, you know, local level, at least black politicians, you get the rise of somebody like a Shirley Chisholm running for president, you know, um, you also see even the Black Panther turn, turn towards kind of local electoral politics in the 1970s. And there's some, and, you know, and people, a lot of people say that this is kind of, I mean, I guess a de-radicalization as you were a black power. Some people say it's the culmination of, you know, grassroots work to be able to, you know, be the mayor of a city that's predominantly black or, um, you know, be the city councilwoman of an area that's predominantly black, because then you really have reached power in that you can control things. So um, this is something that's a really ongoing debate. Um, But I do think that, um, I think that for me in particular, I I really think that a large part of the 70s is um, certainly this kind of move towards electoral politics, but also this really kind of um, pan-Africanist or third world impost abroad that people often overlook. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, especially going into the, the final um, chapter of your book as well. You bring up obviously um, what's going on in the late '70s and going into the '80s, and and I think a lot of times, you know, if we talk about institutionalization beginning in the '70s, it's almost like the '80s is the first decade, really. That that's a it's not a set process, but it's it's you don't necessarily think about radical uh, uh, movements as as much, though obviously they were actually there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and this is another example of where um, 
you've got to have a broader understanding of who black power actors are. If you're looking at a certain set of black men, then yeah, the movement's going to look one way. But if you're looking at, for example, in the last chapter, the Third World Women's Alliance, which was a black and then eventually women of color group, well, then you see quite a different radical impulse than that of you see even looking at some of these major groups. So, um, you know, again, one of the goals of the book is kind of to say when we broaden our view of, of who black power actors are, are, what black power means, and what kind of political ideology and theorizing means, you see that these radical impulses really do extend um, far past when you when most people kind of mark the end of black power, as it were. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, definitely that, that definitely brings me up to uh, trying to continuously push. Because I think sometimes we... Now I'm speaking for myself in this way. Um, you you have opportunities every day and and throughout your life to really push your politics, but not only push them, but try to hold yourself to them. And I think there's always times to continuously push yourself, and you have examples, uh, particular examples in your life where you're able to say that in this moment, I had an opportunity to to actually not only voice my policies, but live them in real life. But mm-hmm. in, in many ways, as I found, that, that that's much harder. And so this book, mm-hmm. for me, is definitely, um, as I've read it, uh, it, was, it was definitely one of those examples of that push to when I speak about uh, particularly the Black Power Movement and, and such like that to people that I know and, 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 and such, because there's always ways to really try to push our particular politics and, and your book provided that impulse for me. So I definitely appreciate that. That's very kind of you to say. Yes, absolutely. And so um, in the final couple minutes that we have you, um, would you be able to tell us, um, you know, what, uh, what, what else you might have as far as a, a new scholarship that you're working on and, and other uh, areas of, of work that you have as a scholar? Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I do a lot of work with the African-American Intellectual History Society, um, shortly known as AAIHS. Um, this is an organization that produces a blog called Black Perspectives, um, which almost every day um, we have um, a collection of um, of historians writing about Black thought and Black politics um, from their particular vantage point. I usually write about, you know, Black women and grassroots politics and theorizing, but we have folks that write about diaspora, Black feminist politics, um, you know, early American politics, you name it. Um, And that has grown into an offline organization um, that holds conferences um, and events thinking about African-American intellectualism. One of the things that is um, really exciting that's happening is that we'll produce our first um, um, kind of publication as an organization. Either it'll come out either late 2018 or early 2019, which is an anthology called New Perspectives on the Black intellectual tradition. And this is basically a collection of, um, you know, kind of the cutting edge intellectual history scholarship from largely young scholars, um, excuse me, with kind of forwards and framing with some of the more established scholars in the field. Um, So we look forward to producing that anthology maybe as as a series moving forward um, so we can continue um, engaging and thinking about um, you know, pushing the boundaries of what it, what black thought means, where it's practiced, how people embody it, um, and what dimensions that it has. Um, so we're super excited about that. We'll have our conference also um, in um, Brandeis in March 30th and 31st of 2018, and that's our third conference. Um, 
So we're very excited about kind of the new directions, both on and offline, the conversations around Black intellectualism um, are taking place and, you know, happy to kind of foster those and be a part of those. Wow. And then actually that was how um, I found out about uh, you and your book, because I actually had... um, uh, I, I definitely every single morning I, I wake up and I see that email five or six in the morning that's in my inbox saying, you know, the, the latest post from the African-American Intellectual History Society. And so you you all are, are definitely doing phenomenal work. And a lot of uh, my grad school friends have been uh, definitely watching and, and being as someone in Boston, I'll definitely make sure to, to come out to the conference because there's, a, there's so much work that you all do. But the greatest thing is you all are so young as an organization that in a society that it's just exactly. And I think that's the part that is so exciting because there's now this new group of, of scholars who are using, you know, technology and using the Internet really as a way to continuously push scholarship and to really expand also what in the academy is considered as important work, which is, I think, a continuously a question and in a, in a, in a, an expansion that uh, Black scholars have always done. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and you know, and, um, you know, one of our kind of key ideas behind that, too, is that, you know, Black thought happens in these kind of online spaces. And so we should be, as academics, as certainly, you know, the kind of books and articles that we write are certainly important. but. Um, there's a way to really um, seriously engage different spaces in which Black thought is happening on the internet as well. Absolutely. Definitely. And so audience, thank you all so much for listening to us today. And once again, we have uh, Dr. Ashley Farmer, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Boston University. And so um, is there any way that um, our audience can find you online, maybe your Twitter handle, uh, so that people might have questions about the book? Uh, yes. Um, so my Twitter handle is Dr. Ashley Farmer. Um, and I also have a website, um, AshleyDFarmer.com, um, where you can um, read the introduction to the book um, and also follow links to purchase it. And um, yeah, I often tweet about the book and other issues related to um, Black intellectual history online. Very good. And so Thank you so much again, Dr. Farmer, for, for uh, letting us interview you today. And I'm sure the audience will, will definitely be uh, excited uh, once they read that first part of the intro. And we already know they're going to buy the book, especially after this interview. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And so signing off once again, I am your host, Adam McNeil, with new books in African-American studies. <laughs>